Well, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of our Lord. Well, I want to begin actually by going uh, backwards, if you'll allow me that. Uh, Paul has left us at the end of chapter 7, if I don't mind saying so, uh, in an uneasy place. You see at the end of chapter 7 there before you in verse 24, Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And so as as Paul uh, walks as a Christian, uh, he knows that he's saved... But Paul also knows this. He knows that sin continues to, in his words, wage war inside of him. And at the end of chapter 7, in verse 25, Paul confesses this. He says, I myself serve the law of God, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. A striking thing for a Christian to say. Now, we don't like this reality, but of course, why should we like this reality? Again, in chapter 7, at verse 22, uh, listen what Paul says. He says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but there's something else. Chapter, or verse 21. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. He knows this by experience. And this by way of just introducing how it is that we then arrive at Romans chapter 8. Now, we could add a few things. We could, we could fill in some gaps very quickly from Romans chapter 7. 
because Paul says in, chat, in verse 19 of Romans 7, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, we can be sure that this is not what always happens in Paul's life, and it's not what always happens in the Christian life. But Paul is telling us that this is something that uh, we ought to and can in God's grace, acknowledge even as Christians, or especially as Christians. This is the normal Christian life until our Lord and Savior returns. And so Paul speaks this way in Romans chapter 7 because it's true. He experiences life like this. And in fact, uh, if we deny that Romans chapter 7 is true for a Christian, uh, we run a couple of risks. If we uh, deny that we uh, are saved and yet still work in the process of sanctification in which there often is a failure and frustration and suffering, if we, if we deny that that is a part of the Christian life, we run, run the risk of either uh, functioning as if I'm completely perfect and I never see sin, well, I know that that's not true, or if I function as if I'm utterly enslaved to sin and can never do that which is pleasing to God, which I also, as a Christian, know is not the case. And so, we have Romans chapter 7. So Paul wants us to see this. He wants us to acknowledge this, uh, but he doesn't want us to build the scaffolding of our identity around this. And so, we move to Romans chapter 8. Now, there is something that that happens in uh, Paul's terminologies. He makes his way through uh, Romans, and uh, even in Romans chapter 6 and 7, Paul has been actually stretching the use of one word in particular, and that word is the word law. You know, sometimes uh, Paul will use the word law to refer refer to the Ten Commandments. I mean, Romans 7, verse 7, the law says, you shall not covet. He's, He's quoting the Ten Commandments. So sometimes he'll use the word law to refer to the Ten Commandments. Uh, And he'll certainly say in the middle of Romans chapter 7 and verse 12 that the law is holy and the command is holy and righteous and good. There is at least an echo in 7.12 of the Ten Commandments. But in Romans 6 through 7, uh, Paul has been teaching us about uh, a law in in a a broader sense as well. He's stretching the word as uh, as if uh, before our very eyes. He says in 7 verse 21, he says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. He finds that to be a law. What's going on here as Paul uses this word? Uh, we, we need to understand that as Paul uses the word law, sometimes it's the Ten Commandments, sometimes it's the Old Testament, uh, but sometimes when he uses the word law, he is talking about a principle, and namely a principle of sin. One commentator says uh, a controlling force operating within humanity. It's a principle of sorts. Now, uh, Paul, we may not like this, uses the word law in a rather flexible way. So Paul understands himself to be a Christian, but he still understands himself as having this controlling force of sorts inside of him, as something that he willingly, publicly, in a letter to the church at Rome, calls a law of sin at work in him. A law of sin at work in him, even as a Christian. He says in 725, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. 
So in this way, every Christian is also a person with a principle of law operating inside of them. Now, again, I've already said that this is uh, not perhaps an ideal way to understand ourselves. We don't want to talk about ourselves in this way. Paul, though, is teaching us to acknowledge this. But it is fair to ask, why do you think God has done this? (laughs) Why would God allow me, as a Christian, to live a life like this? It sounds a bit like torture, but it isn't. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, John chapter 17, uh, says that uh, he is leaving us, but uh, he is leaving us as followers of his in the world. But he's not leaving us in the world alone. He's not leaving us in the world in complete abeyance and obedience and uh, servitude to the law of sin working inside of us. No. Jesus says, I am leaving them in the world, and while they are susceptible to the forces of sin around us and the forces of sin inside, he has left us in the world that we would depend upon our Heavenly Father to care for us. Jesus prays for us. Jesus prayed for us in John 17, and he continues to pray for us that God would protect us from the evil one, that he would remind us that we are not of the world, and that he would sanctify us through the truth of the word. John 17, verses 16 through 17. And so, Christian, you and I have an opportunity, though it is painful to live with the law of sin within us, and it is difficult even to admit and talk about, we have an opportunity to depend upon our Heavenly Father and his work in us by his Holy Spirit. Moment by moment by moment by moment by moment. Now, someone who is not a believer does not have access to that moment by moment care. And so what Paul is doing here in Romans chapter 8 is a a few things. In the first four verses, verses 1 through 4, Paul is going to tell us uh, who we are as Christians. In a sense, uh, he is going to uh, help to, to redefine how we feel about ourselves and tell us authoritatively who we are as Christians. Uh, In a sense, he is, in verses 1 and 4, he is building scaffolding around us. We are frail. We are weak. And he is building the scaffolding around us in the first four verses. And then in verses 5 through 11, uh, Paul is almost because he knows that we are dim-witted, that we are dull of heart. In verses 5 through 11, Paul is going to contrast uh, together uh, the picture of a Christian and the picture of a non-believer. He's going to put them next to each other that we as Christians uh, might understand more about who we are in Christ Jesus. And then finally, at the very, very end, in verses 12 through 18, Paul is going to ask us to do something that is so very difficult as Christians. He's going to ask us to lean upon the understanding of God, to lean upon him, to lean upon uh, his uh, future plan for us, to lean upon him in trust as we trust his future for ourselves, even as we suffer. The passage ends with suffering. So, all the while, what Paul is doing is Paul is telling us that the Christian struggles with the law of sin. But even as the Christian struggles with the law of sin, the Christian belongs to God. Belongs to God and belongs to God by the work of the Holy Spirit. And he or she now walks according to that Holy Spirit. Even 
if imperfectly. The Christian struggles with the law of sin, but the Christian belongs to God by the work of the Holy Spirit, and he or she now walks according to that spirit, even if imperfectly. So verses 1 through 4, who are we? Have you ever had the experience of looking at a picture of yourself as a, as a baby, as an infant, and not recognizing who you are? I mean, it's not that all babies look alike. I don't believe that. But they do look awfully similar, don't they? And I've seen pictures of myself shown by my parents. This is you as a baby. And I can kind of see traces of myself in the shape of that little person's face. Something about the eyes and the nose. Vaguely familiar, but also vaguely foreign. Maybe you've had that experience as well. Now, I come around and I acknowledge that, yes, indeed, this is a picture of me. But sometimes the picture looks rather vaguely like me and somewhat foreign to me. Well, what Paul does is he shows us a picture of ourself almost as babies. It's kind of familiar, but it's kind of unfamiliar as well. And so uh, these four verses do something rather powerful uh, as we uh, live lives as Christians. Uh, the, uh, notice a few things about this, uh, these uh, four short verses. And notice, first of all, this. And notice that these four verses tell a story of something that has taken place in the past, but has sure implications for the present. If you would, please, look, look with me at verses 1 through 4. Uh, there's a story of sorts happening here. In verse 3, we read, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. God has done something. And verse 3 is in the past. This is an event that takes place in the past. Verse 3, uh, he says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Uh, again, this is an action, and it's an action in the past. And then also in verse uh, 3, uh, he, God, condemned sin in the flesh. It's a past action. All of these events uh, have already taken place. Uh, they are done, and we know that events in the past have happened. They can't be changed. It's done. Well, we need to notice that in these first four verses. Because just as securely as the past is the past, those things that have happened, that God has done, well, this passage tells us there are a few implications for the present. Look at four. It's really a very clear uh, expression of what I mean by this. Uh, Certain events took place in the past. And what does Paul say in verse four? In order. Do you see that? In order. These events took place in the past in order that something might happen in the present. And continue looking at verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement might be fulfilled in us. That which securely happened in the past has securely guaranteed something in the present. That's all I'm asking you to notice right now. You see, uh, in verse 4, we have the statement that's telling us that uh, a thing has happened in the past and it served to secure something in the, in the present, the righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled in us. Uh, look again in verse 2. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. That's verse 2. A past event, present implications. And this present reality is just as secure as the past realities. Notice that first of all, that there is a story with secure past realities and secure present realities. That's the first thing to notice about these four verses. The second thing I'd like for us to notice about these four verses is that these four verses, they progress, they move along, not because of you and not because of me, but because of God. 
God is the one who is directing these events. He is moving these four verses forward. Uh, Verse uh, 4 says the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. Look at that. You and I, as Christians, are right there in verse 4, in us. Isn't that great? It's like looking at a group picture. When you look at a group picture and you know you're in it, who do you look for first? And look what Paul says right here in verse 4, fulfilled in us. We have a presence in this story, but we don't get to drive the story, do we? Verse 3 says, for God has done. We do forget this as Christians. I don't know if it's an American thing. We are a self-sufficient people. We are a highly pragmatic people. Uh, It is very quick for us to move ourselves, our wishes, our uh, strengths and abilities, our hopes and expectations right to the center of the picture. But we don't get to do that here for God has done. And in fact, you and I, we're in verse 3 as well as we are in verse 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. What does this mean? Well, in Romans, Paul has described God as intensely demanding, hasn't he? Uh, Nobody has an excuse before God. Paul has made that very clear to us in Romans 1 and 2. Uh, God, he has created the world. Uh, The world declares God's glory, but humanity doesn't. God made humanity to declare God's glory. But every man and every woman has rebelled against God. It could not be otherwise. Every man and every woman is born in sin. Paul has said in Romans 5 that every man and every woman is represented by the first Adam. God is therefore tremendously dangerous. Men and women are sinners deserving God's judgment. In fact, we can see echoes of this in verse 3. The nature of every man and woman is, Paul says, sinful flesh. And thus, we are deserving of condemnation. Even though both the Jew and the Gentile uh, uh, know something uh, about uh, the law of some sort, uh, Gentiles perhaps through the Jews, uh, every human being knows that there is a divine standard, that there is a right, and that there is a wrong And what Paul's saying to us is that weakened by the flesh, these human beings, they cannot keep God's standard and deserve God's condemnation. This is true for every human. But God has done something. You hear how important it is that God would drive forward these four verses. He has, verse 3, sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Not the sin of Jesus, his only begotten one, but for our sin. He placed his own only begotten son in a position to receive condemnation for the sinner on the, for the sinner, and he's done that on the cross. He has condemned that sin in the flesh by condemning his own son. And you see, that's how the us gets to have a part in the story of verses one through four. And so the first thing I've asked you to notice is that the verses 1 through 4 present a story with a past and, and, a, and a present. And that verses 1 through 4, they uh, actually describe uh, something that not, not, not what I've done, but something that God has done. Uh, but there's another couple of things to note about verses 1 through 4. Uh, and one of them is this, that the reality of these four verses is actually non-negotiable. It's non-negotiable. Now, this is, a, this is important for us because there are realities of verses 1 through 4 that we actually don't feel sometimes. 
But when Paul says there is now, uh, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he is not describing the possibility of something. He is describing the reality of something. The story is finished. This is as true as saying that uh, you were born in Oklahoma, which I was. Or as true as saying that you have a mother and a father. As true as saying that you are currently sitting in this church right now. As true as saying that as you sit right here right now, you are breathing. It's not negotiable. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then finally is this. I just want to acknowledge before we leave these four verses. Indeed, it's a story. It's a story uh, with a past and a present. And it's a story that's driven by God, not us. Uh, And it is uh, the presentation of a reality that's non-negotiable. But finally this. uh, Verses 1 through 4 actually uh, go against uh, how I feel about 50% of the time. It may be not 50%. Sometimes less, sometimes more. But these verses will very often go against how I feel as a human being, living as a Christian even. I'm making an approximate statement here, but I think that many of us struggle with this statement that a Christian is someone who, in verse 4, walks not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How does that strike you this morning, Christian? Well, it is important for us to understand that God has done something powerful and he's done it of his own initiative. There is nothing that I could do to provoke God or to motivate God to do the great thing that he has done in sending his son to die for my sins. Uh, And indeed, he has done it. He has fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. Every standard of God's has been met. But when he says, Paul says in verse 4, that every, that Christian behavior, that walking of, uh, walking as a Christian, when he talks about that, I get a little bit, well, squirmy. Because I don't feel like I always walk according to the flesh or according to the spirit. I feel oftentimes that I walk according to the flesh. But Paul is stating a fact in verse 4. That God has made me into the kind of person who walks according to the Spirit. That is what a Christian is. Even when that Christian doesn't feel this. You see, if I'm a Christian, the Holy Spirit is the, is the driving operative force in my life. Now this, to be sure, does not mean that my behavior determines my salvation. That's not what Paul is saying at all. Only God gives the story of salvation. But when Paul says in verse 4 that a Christian is someone uh, who uh, walks not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit, this does mean that the Spirit is always at work inside the Christian. And I can give you an example of what I mean by that. I've spoken to Christian men and women who are very despondent, filled with desperation, aware of their great sin. Some even whom I've spoken to have been ready to leave this world and to go see Jesus immediately. They don't feel that the Holy Spirit is at work in them at all. But verse 4 says that the Holy Spirit is at work in every Christian. They wonder how can the Holy Spirit be there? And they wonder how can God be with them 
because they have sinned so badly and they are so very worthless. And sometimes they'll cry out very much like Paul. I don't want to sin, but I do. I don't want to sin, but I do. I don't want to sin, but I do. How wretched that I am. Who will deliver me? I've spoken to people like this who profess faith in Jesus Christ, and so have you. But there's something very interesting about that person who wants to leave this world and to go be with Jesus immediately, so filled with desperation they are. There's something interesting about them. They know that they are desperate. Do you find that to be interesting? I find that to be very interesting. That a person who professes faith in Jesus Christ and yet runs up against a, 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 a thick black cloud uh, that swarms then around them and begins to fool them that it is better to leave this life and to go be with Jesus immediately, uh, that person still has the Holy Spirit working in them. They know that they are a sinner. They know that they are undeserving. They know that they are desperate. They know that they are not worthy of God's care. They know that they need to be rescued not once at the beginning of their walk, but every day. They know this. How do they know that? Verse 4. Because every Christian has the Holy Spirit working in them. And that Spirit is at work, even in those dire circumstances. Now, those are just a a few things to notice about those first uh, four verses. And the the last thing I've asked you to notice is that uh, these four verses for me as a Christian actually uh, dispute how I feel about myself sometime. And I think it disputes how you feel about yourself sometime, even even as a Christian. Now, verses 5 through 11, uh, Paul is going to do something almost because we are just children. We just are so foolish, we don't understand things very clearly. And Paul has told us in verses 1 through 4 who we are as Christians. But now, in 5 through 11, he's going to contrast these two pictures, a picture of a Christian and a picture of a non-believer. Paul, uh, both the way he understands a Christian and the way he understands a non-believer is actually pretty challenging to us. Uh, How does our brother Paul understand a Christian? He's introduced that in these first four verses. He's going to say more. And how does our brother Paul understand someone who is not a believer? Well, let's start with the non-believer. You know, we have a tendency to think that a non-believer is simply a morally neutral person. Uh, They're a person who is uh, waiting to choose sides. They are presently uh, unaffiliated, as it were, and they're waiting. But that's not how Paul understands a non-believer. In fact, if we see a non-believer as someone who is merely uh, neutral, we actually cheapen the gospel. Look what Paul says in verse 5. Paul says that an unbeliever is someone who sets their minds on the things of the flesh. This sets their minds. That seems like a pretty deliberate activity. Uh, They are deliberately, actively following a path. They're not neutral at all, according to Paul in verse 5. They've set their minds. And then he says in verse 7 that they're uh, living uh, according to a mind that is actually hostile towards God. They actually refuse to submit to God. And we may not describe uh, a non-believer like that, but Paul does in verse 7. He says that they are not actually even able to submit to God, even if they tried. He actually talks about non-believers in, in a, pretty, a pretty desperate situation. And in verse 8, he says, uh, they are those who are in the flesh and cannot please God. Now, these are hard words. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not, you're not a believer. Well, 
Paul doesn't allow you to uh, hover in that realm for a while. And Paul describes you here in verses 5 through 8. And if you're here this morning as a Christian, uh, don't think too quickly that this uh, seems to be uh, a cruel way to describe those who do not believe. There's something that Paul is doing here. He is emphasizing uh, the great power that is necessary to change a person's heart. Those of you who are converted as adults know this. You know that great power to take a heart that is like what Paul describes in verses 5 through 8. A heart that is hostile to God. A heart uh, that follows the actions of a mind that is set on things of the flesh. Uh, What's going to save that person? Well, the gospel does. And so even as Paul has hard things to say about a non-believer, Paul is saying what he has already said in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, uh, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Who can save someone like verses 5 through 8 of Romans chapter 8? God and the gospel. He's done it to you. He's done it to me. This used to be me, but is no longer And so, Paul, when he talks about a non-believer, we actually cheapen the gospel if we think that a non-believer is merely neutral. But there's something else that we do. Not only does Paul challenge us how to view someone who is not a believer, Paul challenges our view of someone who is a believer. And really what Paul does is, because we tend to think of a believer as a person whose behavior uh, matches a certain, uh, a certain pattern, uh, and sometimes this is true, that we can recognize a Christian easily because of their behavior. However, sometimes it's not true. But when we only look for the behavior to define that a person is a Christian, uh, we actually run the risk of contorting the gospel. And I'll tell you what I mean. See, in verse 5, Paul describes a Christian this way. He says, those who live according to the Spirit, that's a Christian person, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, right away, this is a statement of dependence, not on self, but a dependence on another, uh, setting their minds on the things of the Spirit. A Christian is someone who depends uh, on another party to uh, be the righteous influence in their lives, and that other party is the Holy Spirit. A person who who, uh, lives according to the Spirit sets their mind on the things of the Spirit. That's a Christian. In verse verse 6, to set the mind on the Spirit is life and is peace. There's no life and there's no peace without Jesus Christ. Verse 6, again, is a description of a Christian. And we can even go a bit further and say that the opposite of those things that he said about a non-believer are actually the things about a believer. Uh, That a Christian uh, has not set their minds on the things of the flesh. Uh, The Christian is not hostile to God. Uh, The Christian submits to God's law. The Christian pleases God. All of those things are, uh, Paul is saying, are true of the Christian. Now, we should understand that, that this, uh, that all of these things appear, uh, well, they appear through rather foggy lenses. You know, sometimes these things are hard to see in those who profess faith in Jesus. And sometimes these things are hard to see in our own lives. However, if a person is a Christian, these realities belong to them. And if we don't understand this about ourselves, we run the risk of contorting the gospel. If we don't understand this about ourselves as we profess faith in Jesus Christ, we actually run the risk of contorting the gospel. And I'll tell you why. You know, we often think that the gospel uh, delivers us from desperation so that we can then live self-controlled lives. 
The gospel is something that I need in the past, and it does something to my life, but after the gospel, my post-gospel life, now I, I, I don't need to be desperate anymore. Now, I, I, over time, I have things more and more in control in my life, but that is not how the gospel works at all. You see, the gospel uh, over time places us not less deeply in desperate need, but more deeply in desperately, desperate need. The Puritans were so good at this because uh, they reminded us that part of, a Christ, part of a Christian sanctification is realizing more and more how desperately they need God's constant attention and favor and warmth and love and treasuring. That's what the gospel does. The gospel indeed saves me, but the gospel sanctifies me. Now, if we think that the gospel takes me out of that place of desperation and puts me in a place in which I uh, no longer need God's help, then, well, we don't understand the manna of the wilderness. God was with them every day. He provided food every day. They didn't get to store it. They just had to trust And that's the Christian life, and that's the work of the gospel, and we contort that gospel if we don't realize this about the Christian life. Every day, my brother and my sister, every day you need the gospel, and every day I need the gospel. Every day I must lean upon not my own work, but the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit that I might grow that that work that God has begun in me would continue. Every day is a day of desperation for the Christian. Now, thankfully we have that in the gospel. The gospel isn't meant merely for the past. Well, it could be that you are a Christian who simply doesn't feel that you are properly setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. You uh, feel, in fact, a certain hostility to God, uh, not perhaps submitting to him as well as you should, perhaps uh, displeasing him at a slightly higher ratio than you are pleasing him. Is that you? Welcome. I'm glad you're here, Christian. This, this opportunity here, as we gather together to celebrate the Lord's Day together, is precisely what we need as Christians. Here, uh, we are reminded that our Lord and Savior is interceding on our behalf all the time, always. His presence is with us. Uh, here, we are reminded that as Christians, we have the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit constantly dwelling in us. Uh, Here, uh, we have the Word of God uh, right in front of us, and it's being applied to us as we uh, hear God's Word and reminded of who we are. And not only that, here this morning we have an opportunity as Christians to come to this table and to partake of a meal that by God's grace, uh, through His Holy Spirit, as we come in faith, is actually nourishing to the Christian. And so you see, uh, the Christian uh, is someone who has permission to be desperate, has permission to be needy. They don't have to spin themselves at all. They can acknowledge uh, front and foremost, I am a sinner and I need my Father's grace every day, including today. Do you see that that's a great liberty as a Christian? Very dangerous, exceedingly dangerous for a non-believer to speak that way. There will come a day 
when your confidence, when your good conscience, it will go away. But for the Christian, well, I am desperately in need day by day by day, but I have Christ Jesus with me. Now, there's proof for what I've just said to you, and the proof is in verses 9 through 11. You see, 9 through 11 is really the joints of the scaffolding. Uh, verses 9 through 11 is, is what, what holds us together as Christians. It's a statement of, of a fact, and it's addressed loudly to Christians. Remember that Romans is a letter written to Christians, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And look what he says in verses 9 through 11. You, however, praise God, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And when he says, if in fact, he is uh, really making a a statement uh, that is affirmative. He is is stating, uh, indeed, uh, indeed, the spirit of God dwells in you. It's what a Christian is. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. The spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And he goes on, verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, right? That's you and I. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. We know that the body is dead. We can't save ourselves. We understand that as Christians. And then he says in verse 11, if, but but really it would be better to read uh, indeed or even uh, count on it. Count on it in verse 11. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Now, theologians call verses 9 through 11 uh, the doctrine of the agency of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, it's the Holy Spirit's work in you. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the very agent for your reconciliation with God and for your Christian walk. But in very quick terms, do you want to know what Paul is saying in verses 9 through 11? He is saying to you and he's saying to me that we are not alone in our Christian walk. You may feel alone. You may feel as though you deserve to be alone. But Paul says, never are we alone in our walk with God. Never. Now, Paul's going to finish this uh, passage uh, with a note of suffering. And we need to acknowledge this. He says in verses 12 through 17 uh, that uh, the Christian suffering is going to be replaced. It's going to lead to much more. You see, this is what Paul's doing in Romans 8. He's telling us in those first four verses who we are as Christians, kind of where to, put, where to build the scaffolding. And then in verses 5 through 11, he's showing us a Christian person next to a non-Christian person, and he's encouraging that Christian with uh, statements of fact about who they are. And then finally, in verses 12 through 17, Paul asks us to lean into the future and see that even though in the present we suffer, in the future we inherit something much better. Verse 12 says, so then, brothers, clearly, right? So then, brothers, he's addressing Christians. Verse 12, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to flesh, to live according to the flesh. You know, we don't, own, we don't owe the flesh anything. You know, how many times, it, it, this is difficult to wrap your minds around until I say this. We don't owe the flesh anything, and yet, how many times have we heard a small voice say in our head, as Christians, if you work harder, God will love you more. You don't know the flesh nothing. If you work harder, God will love you more. Perhaps you've heard this uh, in your head. Uh, You've heard, uh, if this sin beats me, God will leave me. If this sin beats me, 
God will leave me. You don't know the flesh nothing. Or maybe you've heard this in your head. My inability to conquer this sin wearies God. My inability to conquer this sin, it just wearies him. You don't know the flesh, nothing. Not as a Christian. And those voices that you hear in your head, they're lies. Verses 9 through 11 is who you are as a Christian. It might be hard to believe. But what the flesh tells you is dangerous to believe. So when Paul says that we're not debtors to the flesh, he's saying exactly what he said in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't care if you feel it. He doesn't care if I feel it. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The flesh can't hold out the possibility for salvation, luring us to salvation. The flesh can only offer us condemnation. It's what the flesh does. Now, real quickly and then we'll finish. Verse 13 does seem to be a little bit confusing. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the spirit, but if in the spirit you, but if the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's very likely that verse 13 is actually a description of a non-believer. He's prepared us for the vocabulary of unbelief. Verse 13 is probably describing someone who is not a believer. But, but John Calvin says that what Paul is doing by holding verse 13 out there is he's trying to, to wake Christians from a dangerous stupor. <laughs> I like that. Verse 13 is, is Paul trying to wake Christians from a dangerous stupor. It is remarkable that in these 17 verses, uh, really the most applicable part of these verses is in verse 13. Uh, Paul is saying that the Christian's not meant to function as if sin is our master, as if a fear of condemnation is that which governs our lives. Uh, Paul's saying uh, that's not how a Christian ought to function. And I, I believe there is admonition here in verse 13. Very often we function as if we're not believers at all. The Christian's not meant to function that way. Sin is not our master. Fear of condemnation doesn't govern us. Our life is to be governed by what? What does Paul tell us? And he gives us such an important image of the Christian walk, and that image is the image of adoption. Everyone in this church would have understood exactly what adoption was. The life of a Christian is a life to be governed by adoption, that of being a grateful child of God. In fact, not even deserving to be God's child and yet being God's child. The wealthiest divine in the cosmos is your father. We're governed by the Holy Spirit uh, that works in us and that teaches us how to draw from that adoption. We're governed by a spirit that that teaches even our inner spirit, our deepest driving principles, uh, to relish the adoption that we have in God. Just as verse 13 is, uh, I think, the most challenging verse of these 17 verses, it holds out before us a proper lens of understanding who we are as Christians, uh, adopted and therefore cared for by the most powerful father in the cosmos. It's appropriate then that Paul uh, would freely, without any hesitation at all, wrap things up in verse 17 by saying that the Christian life is going to include suffering in the present. Of course it's going to include suffering in the present. Look what Paul has described in chapter 7. Oftentimes we think that suffering is all about persecution of others. But we live in America. We can worship freely. So I don't suffer persecution here. And then in light of cultural changes in our own country over the past couple of decades, we begin to feel that a bit. Now the Christian is beginning to feel some persecution even in America. 
But I say it doesn't matter. The suffering of a Christian is living with that flesh. The power of sin within them. Constantly waging war with the Christian, but yet constantly driving the Christian to dependence upon God. So all the while, Paul has been telling us that the Christian struggles with the law of sin. And even though this is true, the Christian still belongs to God. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, he or she now walks according to that spirit, even imperfectly. Uh, This is a better story of ourselves than the story that we tell each other. And I think there's a great application. And then we'll pray. The application is that the gospel never grows stale. The gospel never grows stale. As we admonish one another, as we care for one another, as we mourn with one another, as we rejoice with one another, may we never do so in such a way that we think that the gospel has done its work and that that work has expired. Now it's technique. Now it's good decision-making. It isn't. It's the gospel. We preach the gospel to ourselves. We preach the gospel to one another. I think that's the driving application. Well, let's uh, close here. Let's pray together and uh, let's, uh, let's meet at the table, shall we? Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for ministering to us in the gospel. We are grateful that the gospel is uh, fixed, that it is unchanging. And we are grateful that we are a people that have exactly what we need in the present. We thank you for the power of the gospel to save. And we thank you for the power of the gospel to sanctify. We thank you, our Holy Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.